Welcome to the prism. This is the place where modern worldviews, events and ideas come under biblical scrutiny. Nice to see you all out on such a fine night to come together. I was speaking of this evening on various social media sites as being the antidote to Davos. Didn't think I would get the ski slopes as well, but here we are. And the subject for this evening is technocracy. And I want to look at a history of the thought of the technocrats and some modern incarnations of it and a biblical or Christian perspective on what we might do about it. I want to read with you from Psalm 2, just a couple of verses. And the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall have them in derision. Well, the subject is technocracy and technocrats, and I suppose you could be forgiven if you're scratching your head and saying, what? What is that? Because up until a couple of years ago, I have to confess I'd never heard of technocracy or technocrats and when I finally did discover the term, I thought it was just a pejorative term. You know the way Sinn Féin talk about the securocrats? And we talk about bureaucrats, people who spend all day sitting at desks shuffling pieces of paper. And I was discovered, I was surprised to discover that technocracy in itself is not actually a bad word. It was a political and economical movement that has been around for a century or so, which we should critique fairly, just in the same way that we would critique socialism or capitalism or Marxism or communism. And yet, hopefully this evening we'll see that the ideas of the early technocrats are driving much of the agendas of modern governments worldwide. I'm going to be completely frank and open with you. Don't be thinking I'm an expert on this subject. I'm not. All that I'm going to do in this talk is to whet your appetite. Maybe make you aware of the existence of this philosophy, this possible threat, I suggest, to our whole way of life and our freedom. And then being made aware, you can then do further research for yourself. So if you lifted the notes on the way in, um, you'll see that there's a list of sources at the back which you'll be able to uh, look at and to develop your own ideas and your own do your own research. So we're going to look at the history of the technocratic movement, the present danger that it poses, and hopefully a Christian response. Let's start with the history of technocracy. I wonder, have you ever looked at the modern um, batch of politicians that we have and thought to yourself, run the country? That lot couldn't run a bath. If you've ever said that, then you could be reasonably close to an accurate um, assessment of what the technocracy movement was all about. One of the hallmarks of modern governments across the world, I'm pretty sure, is incompetence. 
if you've realised that democratically elected governments are often incompetent, and that they are incompetent because those who sit in parliaments and those who hold high offices, high offices are not often qualified in the responsibilities that they're holding. They're not experienced at the work they're doing. Then you'll understand the basic motivation of the early technocrats. Here's a very basic definition of technocracy. It's just from Wikipedia. Technocracy is a form of government in which the decision maker or makers are selected based on their expertise in a given area of responsibility, particularly with regard to scientific or technical knowledge. So, the technocrats were simply imagining the advantages of having a medically qualified Minister of Health. You know what I mean? A lawyer as a Minister for Justice, a former energy boss running the Department of Energy, a highly qualified agriculturist in charge of DEFRA, a food scientist in charge of our food supplies, and over them all, a Prime Minister or a First Minister who has actually been a successful Chief Executive Office of a successful company. People running the government who actually know what they're doing. And that's the basic thought that was underlying early technocracy. You sometimes read that it began in the early 1930s in the United States of America. It was the time of the Great Depression. People in the cities and towns and countryside in America were living on the breadline. But the word technocracy itself had been around for years before that. After all, it comes from the Greek techno, which just simply means skill. It was a philosophical idea being tossed around in North America for 10 years or so before the Great Depression. But it was during that depression that it found a public voice. And what was the Great Depression? It was a complete economic crash, a destruction of the currency and the economy of the country. It included economic failure on a global scale. It included the so-called Wall Street crash of 1929. It included trade wars, unemployment, all coming together basically to destroy the economy. Quite a few years ago, I did an HND in photography. And my project dissertation was the use of photography to promote social awareness during the Great Depression. And so great was the depth of poverty that the United States Farm Administration Bureau actually employed photographers to travel the countryside, to go around the rural areas, the farms, to chronicle the awful plight of families who were caught in this dreadful poverty trap caused by the Great Depression. The, the conditions were so horrendous that words alone couldn't describe the way that people were being forced to live. The bankers and the politicians, the city dwellers, they needed to actually see what was happening in the days before instant communications. The only way to do that was through photographic images. And they needed to see what was happening in the rural areas in order to appreciate the depths of the damage that had been done to the American economic system. And of course, the result of that was that corrupt politicians and greedy capitalist bankers were seen by many to be totally incompetent at running the country. People began to look for a better system of government. In Europe, they turned to fascism and they turned to communism in continental Europe. Capitalism, they said, had failed. The stock market had crashed. Communism was hated in America, so a completely new system was needed. And many thinkers and intellectuals and scientists and engineers began to come to the conclusion, rightly or wrongly, that the wrong people were in charge of the country, that the country would be better governed by people 
who were qualified in the skills required to run a successful business. People with the skills to govern rather than just an ability to garner votes. The answer, they thought, was technocracy. Government by people who had the skill to govern in their eyes. It was in those circumstances that the hitherto low-key technocratic activists came into public view. Now, there were two reasons for that. The first was the fault of an Ulster Scot. Isn't it always? A man called Howard Scott. Howard Scott was born in 1980, and he lived till 1970. And he somehow turned up in New York in 1918. He was a 28-year-old young man working on various construction sites. In New York, it was a boom time. It was before the Depression, before the slump. He was gaining practical civil engineering experience. And he claimed that he had a formal engineering education that he'd gained at university in Europe. He was a fanatical technocrat. At the end of World War I, he was already working with others to promote his ideas about how engineers like him could govern better than unqualified politicians and the capitalist bankers. In the 1930s, he'd progressed. He got a job as a lecturer in engineering in Columbia University in New York. Even then, that university was a bastion of liberalism. And there he was using his position as a lecturer in engineering to further the philosophy of government that he held. And it was being backed by the university itself. The faculty of Columba loved innovation. They loved new progressive ideas. And they didn't much like the, the establishment that was running the country. And they enthusiastically promoted this idea that if government was going to succeed, it had to be led by people who were experts. Just keep your eye on some of the phrases that have been used here. In 1932, what was happening in Columbia University came to the attention of a man called Rudolf Hearst. The Hearst newspaper group had papers right across the USA. It had many national magazines. Randolph Hearst, rather, was a man whose aptitude for inventing news and fabricating stories would put any British tabloid to shame. But like everybody else in the Depression, Hearst newspapers were struggling. Who buys magazines or newspapers when you can't feed your family? But he heard that Columbia University was promoting and teaching a completely new government and economic system. It was a story that would sell papers. Hearst got on board. He ran with it right across the group, and technocracy suddenly became the national conversation of the mid-30s in America. Let's have a completely new start, not just for America, but for the whole world. Scott, Columbia University, the technocrats were on every front page of every paper, and of course, where the Hearst Group led, other papers followed. All was well then, until somehow Columbia University discovered that Scott was a complete fraud. His eminent engineering degree from Europe didn't even exist. They were immediately concerned about their reputation. 
The university had been funding Scott, had been funding the technocracy movement, and they felt that they had been cheated, that they had been defrauded. They took instant action. They banned Scott and forbade the technocracy movement from any of his, from any of the university campuses. Hearst followed suit. He banned Scott from the papers and banned any editor of any journal or any journalist from even mentioning the word technocracy on pain of instant dismissal. Poor hard Scott, he's now penniless. And the whole technocracy movement is discredited, dead in the water. From Scott's point of view, it was a disaster. He liked a bohemian lifestyle. But he came across a younger man, a man called King Hubbard. The king is a name, not a rank. Um, he was an American geologist and geophysicist, and together they registered a company, Technocracy Inc. Here's a simple statement again from one of the popular websites. Technocracy Inc. was formed in 1931 to promote the ideas of Howard Scott. Howard Scott called for the price system and fiat currencies to be replaced with a system based on how much energy it takes to produce specific goods. Scott called for engineers to run a continental government, which he termed a tacnate, to optimise the use of energy to assure abundance. Virtually unknown today, the organisation boasted, boasted, boasted over half a million members in California alone at its peak in the 30s and 40s. Technocracy Inc. actually still exists. It was a membership-based organisation, and of course it had a membership fee, and that kept Scott financially supplied, but it had to offer its members something, and it's a good job it did because it helps us to understand what they actually planned. It published a magazine called The Technocrat. It offered a study course so that the members of Technocracy Inc. would be able to better understand the political and economic principles of the movement. So what did the 1930s technocrats envision as the political and economic landscape of their Tacnate, their new country. And to summarize their plans, and if you have the notes, you'll see that I've laid them out for you, I think. Here's the manifesto taken directly from their um, study course, and I'm paraphrasing it somewhat. The first point was supranationalism. You know that we have countries and borders, don't we? They thought all borders should be done away with. They wanted the establishment of an American tacnate, a supranational political economic bloc that would include all of North America, including Greenland, some of the northern states of South America. National governments would be dissolved. Borders would be done away with. It's not quite globalism as we know it, but the technocrats believed that what they were planning for North America would be applied worldwide. The second point is that the democratic governments of those nations ought to be dissolved, replaced by experts. Immediately begs the question, which experts? Decisions would not be made by representation of the people, but by dem or by democratic mandate, but by the science. Are you starting to see where this is going? Traditional left-right socialist capitalist politics were of no interest to the technocrats. They were based on monetary principles that involved a price-based currency system. So you might say that technocracy was the third way. Tony Blair, 
They even called upon President Roosevelt to declare himself a dictator, to install a company structure of directors and managers instead of the United States Senate and House. The third section of thought was that they wanted to refashion, reimagine education. Hitherto, to that point, in a classical education, children and students were encouraged to think for themselves. But in the new tactnet, children would be trained specifically to support the needs of the state, taught what to think instead of how to think. Fourthly, there would be social engineering. This is before the invention, of course, of neuro-linguistic programming and government psychological nudge units and behavioural insight teams. These technocrats were keen to change the behaviour of the population, population through scientific education and psychological influences. Fifthly, you will own nothing and be happy. Now you do see where it's going, don't you? The technate would not have private property. That right would be removed. Houses and land, farms would be the property of the technate. It would be allocated on what they thought was a fair basis, dependent upon need. Cars would be in public ownership with people having access to a vehicle from a local car pool and you would collect the vehicle and you would return it. I know it sounds a lot like communism but the technocrats were as much opposed to communism as they were to to capitalism. Sixthly, everyone will have a universal alliance. In the technocrat, Back in the 30s, all basic human needs would be provided for by the state. This is way back in the mid-30s and early 40s. Food, shelter, medical treatment and so on, there would be a universal basic income, if you like, a kind of state pension for everybody. And work-life balance would be drastically altered, for the plan in those days was to Abolish the working week. A bit like working from home. Even the months would be abolished. The technocrats saw no sense in the division of time into seven-day weeks. They planned to abandon the present system of calculating time and replace it with a numerical system, with the first day of the vernal equinox being gnawed and every day thereafter numbered in sequence up to 365 or 366 in a leap year. So no more weekends. No more Lord's Day. People will work four days on, three days off. Productivity will continue 365 days a year rather than the five-day working week of that time. Seven. It's important. The abolition of what we call today fiat currency. That was the driving force behind all of those other innovations. The pound in your pocket has to go. Or the dollar in the pocket of the Americans of the 1930s. The value of the money that we use every day is controlled by the government. That's what we call fiat currency. It's why we have rampant inflation. Remember the COVID lockdowns, do you? Um, if you hear the government on talking about the state of the economy today, it's Putin's fault, isn't it? Everything's Putin's fault, or it's the fault of COVID. But the government, during the lockdowns, printed money hand over fist, didn't they? They printed money to pay for the furloughs, to pay for the failed track and trace system, to pay for the pay for the millions of pounds worth of personal protection equipment that was regarded as useless by the NHS, thrown in the bin. The government simply issued more currency. And we talk about them printing money, but they're not printing anything. 
because 97% or so of the money that's circulating in the economy is actually digital. It literally doesn't exist in a physical sense. Money is worth, quite simply, whatever you buy with it. It's price-based on a given day. Back in 1977, Jeanette and me bought a nice house, a nice semi in, in Bangor. We paid £8,000 for it. If we'd kept that money at a bank account to now, would it buy a house at £8,000? I don't think so. We'd still have our £8,000, but it'd be worth a whole lot less. In 1932, just after the Wall Street crash, people had suffered financial ruin. Technocrats would take their worthless money and they would replace it with a new currency. Now listen carefully. That new currency would be based on energy credits in 1935. And you could work out the amount of energy needed to maintain your home and maintain your standard of living, and they will issue you with these new energy certificates. And you could then use those certificates to purchase the energy that you needed. And currency would be measured by and denominated in energy. And the energy certificates will have a use-by date. Enough certificates issued for a predetermined time period, say three months. But at the end of those three months, the surplus energy credits that you have will be returned to the state so that no one can accumulate personal wealth. The technocrats showing foresight, they even imagined electronic payments so they didn't know how they were going to do them and of course all of that those seven steps supranationalism the dissolving of democratic government the refashioning of education the amount of social engineering that would be needed the the buying of private property and the, the letting of it out, the universal alliance, the abolition of currency, all of that would require constant monitoring of the population. It was a mathematician's dream. How much energy would be needed to make a pound of sausages and a bag of chips? How much energy credits would be given to each home? To make those calculations, would require constant surveillance of the population, constant monitoring, and a system of social credits would be needed to measure journeys that people make and the heat that they use and the food that they eat for every citizen. How would they ever bring all of that in? But remember, the economy is wrecked by the Depression. They're thinking, this is the alternative. Now, if you think those policies are crazy, as I've already said, they were actually popular in America, especially in Canada and California. These ambitious, supranational plans had millions of eager supporters. Why did it not happen in that day? Well, first of all, those scientists and engineers who planned the technocracy had this egotistical naivety. They thought, you see, that they could do this because they were cleverer than everybody else. They thought that people would simply, when they presented their plans, people would simply see the reality of it. They would say that the experts know best and they would offer no resistance. Isn't that what happened during COVID? People said, well, look, we've got experts on the TV telling us what we must do. The experts know best. Go along with the experts. Just go with the science. Follow the science was what the message was. No resistance offered. But to be fair, the people of that day didn't go along with it. The leaders of the movement insisted 
that all of the members of the technocracy Inc. of that day should be presented in such a way it was like a they, they, they would have had meetings and they would have come together like in conventions and they would be dressed the same, the men all dressed in regulation three-piece grey suits, the ladies in smart grey dresses. They even became like a cult. They, they had even got a salute. And people began to become wary of these egotistical people. And there was political resistance. The technocrats claimed to be apolitical. They said they were neither left nor right. They wanted an end to political parties. They wanted an end to professional politics. There must have been resistance from the establishment. They don't make mistakes like that nowadays. They had logistical problems. How would they make it all work, practically speaking? How would they work out what anyone was eating on a given day? How much energy you would be needing? Think of the amount of processing events, the massive amounts of paper and the armies of civil servants that would be required to enforce all of this. And probably what killed it dead in those days was the gradual improvement that occurred after the Second World War. A rise of optimism in the USA. The baby boomer generation had begun. Probably to the dismay of the population alarmists and the eugenicists. And even those people who thought that a technocratic solution was the way forward were drawn away by President F.D. Roosevelt's New Deal. An attempt to bring government closer to the people alleviate hardship. So by the 1940s, any appeal that technocracy had was swiftly ebbing away and the movement fell into abeyance. The 50s came and the 60s and it became little more than an obscure group of eccentrics and fringe intellectuals and engineers. And King Hubbard resigned and Hard Scott remained as the head of Technocracy Inc. until his death in 1970. That's the history. But we have people today with the same aims and the same principles except that they have different methods. Following the death of Scott and the reduction of technocracy Inc. to just a handful of people, you might have thought that the movement will have died out. It, it should have. And it would have, but for a man called David Rockefeller. David Rockefeller was one of the famous banking family. And he was clever enough to know that the currency system of the world price-based economics of the West would eventually crash. The banks are lending money that they don't have. Governments are still incompetent and to a greater or lesser degree are corrupt. Every government seems to be have seems to have corruption. Can't go on forever. It's a giant government-sponsored official Ponzi scheme. And like all Ponzi schemes, sooner or later it's going to collapse. And Rockefeller is one of the wealthiest men in the world and he wanted it to stay that way. He's not the only one who thinks that the fiat money system will one day end. Did you ever wonder why Bill Gates is buying all the farmland up in America? He wants assets. He's not going to farm land. He's not interested in cows. He wants physical assets. In 1973, David Rockefeller met Zbigniew Brzezinski. He was a political science professor at Columbia University and an author. And together they founded an organization called 
the Trilateral Commission. Have you heard of it? It has the stated aim of creating a new international economic order. People have told me that I'm indulging in conspiracy theories. This is no theory. It's their stated aim. It's completely open. It's above board. You can go onto their website. You can look it up. The stated purpose of the Trilateral Commission is to do away with our present price-based currency system and to replace it with a completely new way of buying and selling. You look it up on the internet and they're going to have a new currency. Guess what it's going to be based on? Energy. Where did they hear that? Energy and resources. They speak of global capitalism in transition. The website trilateral.org states, and I've given you the reference on the back of the notes, capitalism or market-based economics are at a historic transition point. Capitalism's positive impact on prosperity and well-being is unmatched. Nonetheless, many people are frustrated today by its inability to handle some of the greatest challenges facing society. There are growing concerns about whether market-based economics will be able to address three major challenges. Here they are. Climate change. Secondly, disruptions triggered by the digital revolution. Thirdly, inequality. I put it to you tonight that the Trilateral Commission is technocracy reborn. Just under a new name. With more subtle methods of achieving their aims. You can't apply to join the the Trilateral Commission. You have to be invited. Ordinary people like us aren't represented. Just experts from the world of business and Politics and academia, people who consider themselves to be the elites, the people who know best, just like Hard Scott and his early technocrats. You can find a list of their members on their website. One of their members, one of those listed, is Sir Keir Starmer, the present leader of Her Majesty's opposition at Westminster. Where is he today? Right now. He's in Davos. Yes, he is. Along with Boris Johnson. A few others. In the 1980s, the Trilateral Commission sold its vision to the United Nations. There was a book written by a member of the Commission, a man called Harlem Brundtland, called Our Common Future. And it popularized a term that you hear all the time today. The term is sustainable development. It has to be sustainable. That's why you have windmills all over the country. In 1992, the United Nations convened the Earth Summit in Brazil and a program was agreed called Agenda 21, the Agenda for Change for the 21st Century. And that's still in force except that it has been expanded. It includes a new economic paradigm that is almost identical to the economic aims of the early technocrats, a resource-based economic system that uses energy as currency. So cities are to be converted into smart cities. National borders are to be gradually erased. Do we even have a border in the United Kingdom from Brexit? Wasn't that supposed to be taking control of our borders? What's happened since? The world will be turned into some kind of borderless utopia. Rural dwellers forced to live in cities. No one's going to be exempt. And to achieve this goal, all production must be in the hands 
of those who know best, the experts, the technocrats who will run the economy and make all decisions for the manufacturers and for the consumers. But here's the problem. Where the early technocrats failed to persuade the population to accept their plans, how will the modern technocrats persuade governments to abandon their national borders, relinquish their fiat currencies, hand over their control to experts, and ensure that their parliaments, some with thousand-year histories established by democracies, are willing to take a back seat and let the experts run the country. How will they do that? Well, they have learned their lessons. The 1930s technocrats simply thought if you explain what you wanted to do to the people, they would see sense and just go along with it. The modern ones are not so naive. They know that the modern people, the people who vote in the elections, Nowadays are not so soft. We have Twitter and Facebook and we can research on the internet and we know more than we used to know. And if you tell people openly that you intend to take away their freedoms, you're not going to have the freedom to travel. You're not going to have the freedom to spend what you choose. You're not going to have freedom of speech. You're not going to have freedom of anonymity. We're going to take away your cash and you're going to have your every move monitored by an app on your phone. Who on earth is going to vote for that? That's where the World Economic Forum comes in. Let's see what they have to say. World Economic Forum is an independent international organization committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic, seems a trilateral commission, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. Incorporated as a not-for-profit foundation in 1971, headquartered in Switzerland, the forum is tied to no political, partisan, or national interests. It is globalist, it is trilateral, it is agenda-driven, it is cross-party, it has no political alignment. It was founded in 1971 by a man called Klaus Schwab. You may have heard of him. He was... A German engineer, an economist. What gives Herr Schwab the right to think that he knows better how to run our economy than we do? Because he is an expert, he thinks. An engineer, let's call him for what he is. He's a technocrat. He's written several books, including his book, The Fourth Industrial Revolution, and his latest unreadable tome, COVID-19, The Great Reset. Have you tried reading it? It has to qualify as the most boring book in the entire world. But the evil genius of the World Economic Forum, let's be honest, Schwab looks and dresses like a villain in a James Bond movie, doesn't he? The genius of the WEF is the so-called their words, capture of democratic structures and institutions. That's how they succeeded where the 1930s technocrats failed. Their Global Young Leaders Programme. In a 2017 interview, Schwab said, and I quote, I have to say when I mention now names like Mrs. Angela Merkel and even Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Sorry, I can't do the accent. Here you go, again. But what we are very proud of now is the young generation like Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We penetrate the cabinet. So yesterday I was at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau. And I know that half of his cabinet, or even more than half of his cabinet, are actually young global leaders. The WEF has 
succeeded where the ordinary, the early technocrats failed by putting their own people into politics across the world. People like Trudeau, Adairn, Macron, Johnson, Sunak. They're all ensconced in parliaments right across the world. They win elections when it seems they are unelectable. They sit in positions of power where they are wanted by no one. The present Prime Minister is only in that position as a result of a globalist coup. Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor of the the Exchequer that nobody ever wanted, promoted to that position when he was in Brussels and while the sitting Chancellor was on an aeroplane flying back from the USA and the then Prime Minister Liz Truss was under extreme duress from him. And our two main political parties, Labour and the Conservative Party, with not a piece of tissue paper of difference between them in policy, and the present leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, at the WEF conference this very week, marking himself out as a global leader. A meeting where corrupt politicians and unelected technocrats and billionaires with messiah complexes are discussing how to fleece even more out of us under the guise of virtue and safety and convenience. So do you recognise any of these ideas? The progressive agendas of the 1930s technocrats replicated in modern government terminology and policy. The continual surveillance of people's lives. The vaccine passports. The energy certificates. Let's call them carbon credits. The meeting of all human needs by the state. Let's call that universal basic income. Education for human conditioning. Let's call that woke ideology. Diversity and inclusion. Gender issues. All being taught in the schools from the very earliest ages. Klaus Schwab on the WEF Global Education Initiative said, and I quote, Our Global Education Initiative we have practically all the big names. We will revolutionize the educational system, working together with local authorities, retrain the teachers, put a new curriculum in place. Those early technocrats wanted private ownership to be forbidden. And Klaus Schwab says, you will own nothing and be happy. And if you've got a smartphone or a smart home or a smart meter or a smart car, it's presented to you as safety and convenience. But it's all about digital control and surveillance by the state. But there's one more tool the cabinet of the technocrats. It's the proposed programmable central bank digital currency, isn't it? Henry Kissinger, well up in years now, he said he who controls the money controls the world. The dangers to our personal freedoms and liberties are truly immense. Central bank digital currencies can have built-in controls so they can discriminate based on age and sex and wealth and race and gender, whatever other categories the government wants. Every central bank digital currency transaction can be tracked and recorded. The inevitable demise of cash will bring an end to anonymous transactions. No more tips for waiters. No more wee gifts for the kids. No more church collection plates. And if you're a vocal opponent of the government, your finances can quite easily be made inaccessible to you, just like PayPal did with the Free Speech Union in 2022. 
central bank digital currency requires a digital identity, just like they have in China. The population is controlled by a system of social credits and punishments and rewards for what the state deems to be good behaviour. It's no wonder some political and economic commentators are saying that China can no longer be regarded as a communist state. Communism in China has actually morphed into a technocracy. So how would a technocratic government persuade you to part with your sterling and take up your new central bank digital currency? Quite simple. They will do what they did in the Depression in America. Wreck the economy. Rampant inflation and higher prices. Make your pounds and your pence worthless and then offer you the digital replacement, the Britcoin. And to make sure you stay in your place, the new Britcoins, your fungible tokens, will have expiry dates. So you're going to have to use them up or their value, like the energy certificates of the 1930s, will return to the state, preventing you from accumulating personal wealth. So you can be no threat whatsoever to the predator classes. Grandiose plans of the original technocrats were promoted as a panacea to the dereliction and the disease left after the Great Depression. Or, as Klaus and Biden and Macron and Ardern and Trudeau and Sunak and as Boris Johnson might say, build back better. The great reset. Well, that's where we're at at the minute. And we've almost, well, we are out of time, but I do want to talk about a Christian response. Because we are sitting, listening to this in a Christian church, and we're doing it from a Christian perspective. We're trying to look at the world around us as Christian believers. And I believe at this point in time, the Christian response is not any form of armed insurrection. I've noticed people in various social media sites calling for citizens to rise up against the so-called elites and to take down the wicked and corrupt system by force. And there certainly have been times when Christians have done so. And the day may come when Christianity is so persecuted in this land that we will be backed into a corner, not unlike the times of the Scottish Covenanters in the 17th century, when many genuine believers were convinced that the only road to religious and political freedom, freedom of religion and freedom of conscience, was actually armed resistance. But we are not there now. We have to remember the wisdom of James. James chapter 1 and verse 20 says, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So what do we do? Well, the first thing is to remember we're not helpless. Second Corinthians 10 and verse 3. Paul says, For though ye walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Let's explore some Christian options. And the first is to stay awake. I really think we have to be aware of what's going on. Paul wrote in, or Peter rather, wrote in First Peter 5 and verse 8, Be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 14, we see that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, recognize that there is in evil taking place in this world, that there are people in this world who have an evil 
malevolent intent. Be aware of what their plans are. The government and its globalist masters want to feed you and me with a diet of bread and circumstances. They want to keep us amused. They don't want us to think about what's happening. They want to entertain you with mind-numbing reality television and keep you from thinking about what's going on. Don't let them. Be strong. Make efforts to educate yourself. Do your research. Do your reading. Discern the times. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Not only should we stay awake, but we should pray. We should pray without ceasing. You see, I think this is a spiritual battle. Don't you? I actually think this is good versus evil. This really is Christ versus Antichrist. The globalist agenda that we're facing is truly satanic. And the spiritual weapon for that battle, the battle, the weapon which is most effective against the schemes of the devil and those who are doing his bidding is prayer. You have to believe that. There used to be a wee saying, the devil trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. Prayer is our effective weapon in this battle. James 5 and 16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The heartfelt, persistent prayer of a believer can accomplish much when it's put into action and made effective by God. It is dynamic. It has tremendous power. And as an evidence of that, Think of the way that prayer is feared by the satanic forces of globalism. Look at the way in which they have legislated against prayer in parliaments right across the Western world. The so-called gay conversion therapy debate included calls from gay rights groups to ban prayer. Ban prayer for homosexuals. And the mainstream media delighted in showing videos of extremist charismatic groups performing weird exorcisms to reinforce a ban, a universal ban for prayer in all its forms in Northern Ireland, right here. MLAs have passed a non-binding motion calling for a ban on conversion therapy in all its forms. It was proposed by Doug Beattie and John Stewart, both unionists. Why do they want to stop Christians from praying near abortion clinics? Have you heard about these recent incidents in December just last month? When a Catholic woman was praying silently on a footpath alone near an abortion mill in Birmingham, a woman called Isabel, Isabel von Spruce. She wasn't holding up any posters. She wasn't obstructing anyone. She wasn't speaking to anyone. And yet the police came along and asked her if she was praying. And when she said she was praying in her head, they arrested her and she's facing prosecution for praying in the street. Now, I think that's an indication of how much the enemy Fears the prayers of saints. Prayer is the target. Why do you think that is? Why do they want to stop people praying? Because the devil knows that prayer, the power of prayer. The devil knows that prayer is powerful and his acolytes hate it as much as he does. And the more that we see that happening, the more it should be a spur to us to pray. And I'm talking about not only private prayer, but public prayer. Prayer from our pulpits should be including a rebuking of the work of the devil in globalism. Ian Bounds said our praying needs to be pressed and pursued with an energy that never tires, a persistency that will not be denied, a courage that never fails. We are to stay awake and we're to pray and we're to redeem the time. 
Ephesians 5 and 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In that passage, Paul recognizes the evil of the last days, the times that have been evil and anti-Christian right throughout the gospel era. We're not experiencing anything unique. But as the end times draw nigh, as the days of the Lord's return approach, I do believe that evil will rise up, that the devil will kick back against his own impending fate, which he is already aware of. And Paul gives us an explicit instruction. We are to redeem the time. We're not to be time wasters in these last days. Psalm 19, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Let's not waste our time with worldly activities. And we should be reading and studying the word of God. Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God and he specifically references the protection that we have by becoming thoroughly acquainted with God's inspired word. He says, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Trust in the Lord. I know that sounds simplistic, but when evil comes, just simply trust the Lord. Isn't the Bible full of precious promises for the Lord's people who simply rest upon him, trust him? As a little child trusts a parent, remember your destiny. Remember that we're heavenly citizens. We're not to be unaware of what's happening in the world. We're not to allow the media to shovel more and more sand on heads that are already buried in it. Let us remember that attractive though this world may seem, this world is not our home. True freedom and true blessing only comes when we're dwelling in the new Jerusalem. There's an amazing statement in Hebrews 11. Abraham was called by God to dwell in the land of promise. And that land held many attractions. And all of them were promised to him and to his seed forever. And yet, strangely enough, even in that glorious land, Abraham never put down permanent roots. He dwelt in a tent. He was content to do so, knowing that as blessed as that land was, it's not his final home. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him, of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The WEF's 15-minute cities that are being established right now. The smart cities. Belfast is a designated smart city. They will be sold to the gullible masses as sustainable and convenient and utopian, but they are not our home. We're looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Christian response is to stay awake, to pray, 
to redeem the time, to read and study the word of God, to trust in the Lord, to remember that this world is not our home. But what about practically? We cannot or should not react with insurrection, at least at this point. Isn't there a practical course of action we should follow? I think there is. I think that practically speaking, Christians should be forming strong support networks for one another. If we're to avoid being sucked into the WEF's beast system. There was a tweet recently quoting Klaus Schwab as speculating that the next major world event could be a massive cyber attack that will destroy the internet as we know it and deprive us of our banking services and our entertainment and our digital lifelines. And of course, the global predators have prepared for this a new improved internet service. It's already in place and all ready to go and just a matter of getting it all set up on your devices. But of course, we don't want the, the, the threat of a repeat attack. So, so to sign up for this new internet, you'll need to have your digital ID. And to get that digital ID, you'll need to have your biosecurity certificate. So you'll need to be fully vaccinated and boosted and you'll need to be meeting your net zero targets. Sure, it never happens. <laughs> sure, it won't. But if it does, or something like it, then practically you're going to be forced to comply or starve unless we have strong networks of Christian people determined to peacefully resist and to provide support for each other. Practical exchange for goods, services. So we do have a strategy as believers to wage war against the satanic agenda of the globalist cabals and their forces. A strategy that I think is biblical and defensive. A strategy that will literally put the fear of God into our foes. Right. That's me finished. What have we learned? We've learned that the present danger that we face is not a recent phenomenon. It's a rehashing of old, long-led plans, except that our breed of modern technocrats, unlike their forebears, actually have the technology in the internet to carry these things out. And we've seen how they will do it, by carefully planting their prepared people inside governments and cabinets by whatever means, and we've observed how these plans are already being enacted. Then we've seen a basic biblical strategy to stand up against this satanic onslaught based around prayer, spiritual battle, wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against the dark powers that have possessed these people and that are holding them in their sway. Finish with a prayer. A collect from the old book of common prayer. Almighty God, give us grace that we may cast away the works of darkness. Put upon us the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which thy son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility. That in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the quick and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Ghost, now and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.